Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Julie Subrin. Today, adventures in 1930s Hollywood. Regular readers of Tablet will know Rachel Shukert as our resident pop culture expert. Shukert writes her weekly Tattler column about everything from movie stars to the British royal family. In addition to being our contributing editor, she's also written for everyone from Slate to Salon to New York Magazine, and she's the author of two memoirs. Now she's ventured into young adult fiction. Her new novel, which is called Starstruck, follows three young women trying to break into the movie industry. It's set in the 1930s, the golden age of Hollywood. But in Shukert's telling, the real drama is happening off-screen. You've got unimaginable secrets, sexual misconduct, and manipulation from the studio chiefs who run the show. Tablet's managing editor Wayne Hoffman sat down with Shukert to talk about her new book, her own experiences trying to break into showbiz, and the changing roles of Jews in Hollywood. Rachel Shukert, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Anyone who's read your column in Tablet knows that you're fascinated by Hollywood, but you're also decades, several decades too young to actually remember the golden age of Hollywood (laughs) in the 30s. Tell me how it was that you first became interested in this bit of cultural history. Well, when I was home from school, I didn't have a lot of friends in the neighborhood because I went to sort of a private Jewish day school that was far away and none of the other Jewish kids lived in my neighborhood, none of the kids that went there. And so I was really kind of on my own a lot in the summers when we were away from school. But um, one thing I was allowed to do and that I would do almost every day, I could walk to the library that wasn't so far from our house. And they had a section of movies. You could check out movies. Um, And I loved to do that because, you know, it was like a big treat to get to rent something from Blockbuster or the actual video store. But these were free and you could take out as many as you wanted. But they were all old movies. I mean, they didn't have any of this sort of like, you know, new Disney releases or other things that I might have been watching. So I started to check out These old movies from the library, I remember the first one I ever checked out, I I must have been about – I really must have been about seven. I mean so this was sort of like 80s, 88, something like 87, 88. And and I checked out Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with Elizabeth Taylor and Paul Newman. So I remember – I checked it out because they were on the cover and I liked the cover and I thought it looked very grown up and it was. (laughs) And I watched that movie probably 10 times over the next two days. I just loved it. Then I got the play from the library. I read the play and I started acting out the play in my room. So, And then that kind of led to Tennessee Williams. And so it was really all interlinked, Tennessee Williams and kind of old Hollywood. The other kind of like er experience I remember is about uh, a couple years later than that. I had really bad insomnia when I was in about uh, fifth or sixth grade all of a sudden. Like I just couldn't sleep. So I started staying up all night long and um, – AMC or Turner Classic Movies, one of them, was having these sort of marathons of movies. And I remember watching this like Alfred Hitchcock marathon. And then there was a Judy Garland marathon for Judy Garland's birthday. And I knew Judy Garland because I loved The Wizard of Oz, obviously. But I hadn't really seen a lot of her other movies, like her sort of MGM, like classic adult movies. And God, I'll never forget this night. It was for me and my gal, um, The Pirate. And Summerstock. And what those three have in common is that they all have her co-starring with Gene Kelly. And seeing them together was just this insane revelation for me 
that I loved Gene Kelly. I mean, I just became completely obsessed with Gene Kelly and with Judy Garland and the pair of them together. And I really, I wanted them to be together in real life. And I just kind of was completely overwhelmed by the sort of magic of these MGM Arthur Freed unit musicals. Um, I would save all of my allowance money and buy the tapes like from Hollywood Video and I check out all these biographies of sort of old movie stars from the library and Xerox all their pictures like from the middle section with the pictures because it was was before the internet you couldn't just like download pictures of people and I pasted them all over my walls and I started just reading everything that I could about um, like the old studio system and the old movies and I kind of would just memorize all of these facts about it almost the way that like little boys that age I think memorize sort of baseball statistics you know like trades (laughs) You know, it was like a very – but there wasn't like a friend I was doing this with. It was just me. Um, and so that was really kind of how it happened. And I was also – I did a lot of theater as a kid and I was very interested in that and I really wanted to be an actress. So I think it was sort of all related to this performative thing. So now you're an obsessive child you and you grow up and you're performing. And I know from your first memoir, Have You No Shame, that – you're this budding actress in Omaha and you move to New York and you have an interest in making it in show business. Yes. You get to New York. How does what you see of show business differ from what you thought you might see? Well, it compared very badly, I have to tell you. <laughs> um, and it was really that – was, that was kind of the beginning of the end for me wanting to be an actress because I started to realize that what I really wanted was to be a sort of actress in the 1930s Hollywood studio system. I didn't want to be – a sort of struggling, you know, 21-year-old actress in um, 2000s New York having to, like, send your headshots out and go to, you know, a million auditions and, you know. Um, and I'm also not, like, a talented dancer or singer, really. So that was <laughs> that was kind of a problem, too. So you were sort of a single threat. I was sort of a single threat. I was, like, a 0.5, sort of, <laughs> 0.5 threat. Um, and then I started to transition into writing because I figured out that what I had, you know, been doing and kind of imagining these characters and telling these long, long stories in my head that I always thought, you know, well, I'm acting. This is acting make-believe. But it wasn't. It was all very interior and quiet. And if you saw me, you wouldn't know I was even doing anything. But I would just, like, sit still, like, with these, like, long, long, complicated, you know, sort of narratives, many of which were sort of show busy in my head as a kid. And I was like, well, no, actually, I was writing, you know. That's writing. So now you're writing, but you're writing about these things that you grew up loving. So yeah. in Starstruck, you take readers behind the scenes in Hollywood to see how things really function, all this backbiting and rivalries, so-called friends sabotaging each other, phony biographies that are created really just for media consumption. If you grew up with a fairly innocent idea of how this world was functioning when you were a teenager, what made you decide to shatter other teenagers uh, illusions by well, writing Starstruck. I don't think I did have an innocent idea about it, actually. <laughs> you know, the more, I mean, I did in a way. I was very innocent and sort of starry eyed about the movies themselves and the stars themselves. But if you start really reading like those biographies, particularly the ones that were coming out at the time, you know, it got, you pretty much started to figure out that like, you know, Judy Garland wasn't this sort of, I mean, she had some problems. <laughs> a few. Yeah. And, that there was a lot of stuff behind the scenes. And that was actually something that I found incredibly interesting. I, I remember I didn't love like the really, really defamatory stuff. But I loved actually like the behind the scenes stories and how you'd hear these sort of scandals that happened and, you know, how there'd be like those hosts on Turner Classic Movies and they would tell you the stories of, you know, what was behind the scenes. So I was always very interested in the behind the scenes stuff. You, you just touched on something that I wanted to go into where 
in the 30s, in the period you're talking about in Starstruck, it seems like the celebrity magazines and the gossip sheets are primarily interested in building celebrities up and making them seem larger than life and inventing romances. When did everything change so that now it seems like they're mostly invested in tearing people down or revealing their scandals or their most embarrassing photos? Yeah, it's really true. I mean, it's like a complete inversion now that as as the star culture in the 30s. I mean, you would never have seen – you know, a picture of Joan Crawford in sweatpants feeding the parking meter, like that whole, because now it's all about like these, it's all become sort of, it wasn't like a democratic system. The whole studio system was really invested in the idea that these people are better than you. They're different than you. They're bigger. They're they're larger than life. They're special. And that's why you should be interested in seeing them. And now we have this sort of democratic idea like, well, she's not so great, you, you know, and you sort of need to like tear people down to make yourself feel better. What, I don't know, whatever that impulse is. Um but part of the reason is because Los Angeles was really a company town in a level that it's – I mean it still is. But like then it was really – I mean the studios had an, a, tr- a tremendous amount of power and the studio employees and the studio bosses had a tremendous amount of power. I mean they, they owned the police. Like if you committed a crime, the studio would figure out a way to cover it up and you would never come to trial even though you killed somebody or you you were caught with – you know. 10 pounds of heroin or whatever happened. Like there was usually a way to fix it. And there were these very powerful studio fixers that had sort of secrets on everyone and operated within this complicated web of bribes and blackmail and and all these things. Um, And so the magazines were really a big part of that. I mean, a lot of them were just sort of arms of the studio that received tremendous payments from the studio in order to sort of print what they wanted them to. Um, and and some of it, I think, also had to do with the fact that the culture really also has changed. You know, this was also a time where nobody printed things about politicians having affairs. And, you know, there was just a sort of different sense of privacy, I think, that, you know, like that people were entitled to some. <laughs> but the fact that, you know, and there was also obviously a lot of secrecy. I mean, there were really these standards of behavior that had to be upheld. And I think we're all better people that, you know, people don't have to sort of exactly like live in the closet or be in these sham marriages or whatever. But like the fact that – I mean that's a tremendous source of conflict that you have this this huge colony of all sort of like creative, bohemian kind of artistic individuals who are then expected to at least appear to the outside world like they're upholding these sort of like Midwestern standards of purity, which was just obviously not ever going to happen. So you needed this veil, right? You needed this kind of whitewashing machine to make these people who – many of whom were living very unconventional lives – um, palatable to this vast audience of consumers. And it was also just a very conservative time socially in the country. I, mean, you, I feel like people talk about the sort of roaring 20s and they forget that it was also really like the rise of the Klan and there was this incredibly like intense um, anti-Semitism and racism and, you know, this really deeply conservative pushback in the country. And, you know, in the 30s, the sort of Catholic League of Decency had just tremendous sway so there was this kind of need to placate these people that saw themselves as the guardians of American morality and the studio bosses who were all these sort of Jewish immigrants who were – had an incredible amount of um, anxiety about their place in America and being sort of socially accepted as it was um, were really eager to kind of try to blend in and do what these people who are supposedly the guardians of the real Americans told them to do. Well, today you're a columnist who writes about Hollywood and celebrities – how do you try to balance the desire that readers have who are so hungry for any kind of dirt and the sort of uh, wonderful illusion, even though it was an illusion, that 
columnist created many decades ago to sort of this patina of royalty around celebrity? I mean, for me, I feel like I, at least I don't have to report the dirt. I can just sort of spin it later. (laughs) You know, like I'm not one of the sort of TMZ guys like digging for the trash. I can then sort of be like, well, we just found this out. So what does this mean in a larger context? Like how can we kind of interpret this? And I feel like that underlies a lot of what I write about too. Like, you know, why are we so concerned with what this person said or what this person wore? I mean, there's something fascinating, I think, about looking really in depth at something that is essentially sort of shallow because it's actually not if you scratch the surface, you know. So many of our attitudes about celebrity reveal so many cultural anxieties and, you know, things about social class and things about uh, feminism and things about so, I mean, there's just so much there. And we really, I think, I mean, that's, I feel like, is is our culture as a litmus test often. Like, how do we treat a certain celebrity scandal or how are we behaving towards a certain actor? What Like, what are our attitudes about this really says a lot about us as a culture. A, a lot's been written before about Hollywood's Jewish roots, about mm. the, the men who built Hollywood and created the movie industry. But your book is focused on the 30s, which saw a whole different wave of Jewish influence that you get into, particularly with some filmmakers who had fled the Nazis and ended up in Hollywood. Why is it you decided to focus Starstruck on this chapter of Hollywood's Jewish history? Well, it's sort of like a common thing to say that 1939 was the sort of apex of the studio system and its time of greatest achievement. It was Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind, you know, sort of like two greatest films of all time. And that was really when it was in its full flower. So the book... The, it's a series, so eventually we'll get to 1939 and, you know, it's 1939 already in the second book. But this is 1938. So I wanted that to just be on the cusp of that, like those things are in development. Those things are happening. And I wanted it to be a little bit before the war but like not so far before the war that like we couldn't sort of deal with the fact that it was coming, you know. Um, and I also was really interested in that intersection of that sort of um, European – emigre culture that was beginning to seep into Hollywood at the time and the tension that it caused with these kind of, you know, you'd get these sort of very urbane, like Viennese, Berlin Jewish film directors who were very highly educated, you know, sort of very serious artists who really did have like quite a big clash with the kind of studio bosses who for the most part were sort of, you know, uneducated Eastern European um, with a sort of different sensibility. And it kind of played out, I think, in a lot of ways that sort of traditional Ashkenazi tension between the sort of like German Jews and the Eastern European Jews, um, which is very interesting to me that that sort of existed at a time when they were all being sort of equally <laughs> persecuted, you know. Um, so that so that was something that was interesting to me. And I, I just artistically it was interesting. I wanted I wanted it to take place at a time where it really felt like there was nothing that Hollywood couldn't do. Um, but also at a time where Hollywood was still very Jewish. Your your main character, Margaret, who mm. becomes Margot, idolizes one movie star in particular. She's read about her in the magazines and she really wants to follow in her footsteps and in fact to some extent does. If you could pick a movie star, could be past or present, whose fo- footsteps you dreamed of following in, who do you think that would be? Oh. I think it would be Catherine Hepburn if she could sing. <laughs> And why? Because she's strong and she's smart and, you know, she's snappy and she's clever. But I would want to be in musicals. Rachel Schuchert, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Rachel Schuchert's new novel is called Starstruck, and it's just out from Delacorte. 
It's every bit as witty and entertaining as her weekly column for Tablet called The Tattler. If you aren't familiar with The Tattler, I recommend you check it out post-haste. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Wayne Hoffman. Thanks so much for listening. And from all of us at Tablet, we wish you a good Passover. Passover.